What is happening, everyone? Welcome again to The Window, Canada's sports betting podcast. Ahead on today's episode of The Window, the Friday football show, I'll break down my handicap for each of the games slated for Week 10 in the NFL, why there's at least one public underdog to be wary of its bite, how to bet each of these short-line games, why there's value where you may least expect it, plus what to expect from the games that are off the board. But first, a breakdown of Thursday night's football action and a lesson in breaking down a box score and figuring out who to trust in the sports betting content world. It's time to head to the window. Let's go. Welcome to The Window. I'm your host, Matt Russell. The big Friday NFL show getting you ready for Sunday. But we have to look back in our Don't Look Back in Anger segment to Thursday Night Football. No anger here as the Colts get there somewhat easily. Obviously, not through the first half as they kept shooting themselves in the foot. But we have to recap the handicap, right? And so what was the handicap? Obviously, from a Colts standpoint, Rivers all day to throw the football. Did he have all day to throw the football Yes, of course, he did. Uh, Frustrating to watch them (laughs) consistently run the ball directly into the line on fourth and one. Frustrating to watch Rivers pump at the goal line, uh, you know, on these short yardage plays where it's just like, throw the ball to your guy. Throw the ball to your guy right now. He's going to get the first down. He's going to get the touchdown. But it's almost as, you know, as if Rivers is wary of people jumping his routes because he can't get the ball out as quick as he used to. And people are reading that. And so that's something, you know, to keep in mind as we go forward, right? The handicap for this was never, oh, Philip Rivers is not washed. It's just his washedness, you know, his degree of washedness isn't going to come into play in this game. And it didn't. And so you've got Rivers throwing 308 passing yards from a team stats standpoint uh, for the Colts. Defensively, didn't do quite as well against Derrick Henry, but no explosive plays from a running standpoint. Zero points allowed in the second half. People getting all kinds of uppity about that first drive and the quote-unquote alleged Colts defense uh, as the Titans go down and score early on. And it's called adjustments. Right, Your defense isn't just the, as they say, Jimmys and Joes out on the field, nor is it really even just the Xs and Os before the game. It's the adjustments that you make throughout the game. And so uh, you have to allow a guy like Matt Eberflus, who is a pretty good defensive coordinator here that not a ton of people know his name, maybe because it's tricky, but... You know, he's allowed to make adjustments at halftime in the second quarter, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was obviously an element to the game. So part of looking back in these games, especially when you win them, is going, okay, you know, what did we learn about both teams? And so I kind of want to go through this exercise before we get into the Sunday games and, of course, the Monday Nighter as well. You know, let's pretend that we lost this game because a lot of people out there lost this game, right? When uh, the heavily, not favored, but sort of heavily bet on Tennessee Titans lose, people are coming out of the woodwork with the excuses as to why they lost. And it's easy to look at that game and go, okay, three-point game when there's a blocked punt for a touchdown. And people will say, and I'm sort of guilty of this at times too, you know, you can't handicap you know, a ball, a, something as random as a blocked punt for a touchdown. Now, in this case, and this is sort of 
against what, not against, but sort of, uh, uh, you know, a, a deterrent or a detriment, if you will, to what we were talking about before this game, I really should have mentioned something about the special teams for Tennessee, right? Like, and I'm the guy who goes in the in the preseason podcast <laughs> talking about the kicker on every team. So maybe it's just sort of the assumption that we know that Steven Goskowski sucks. Uh, obviously, the punter off the street for Tennessee, you know, his not, not his fault that the punt got blocked necessarily, right? But this is just sort of an element of the special teams here that if the Titans can't kick field goals, which they have never been able to do over the last two years, what's, you know, what are we supposed to believe about their special teams in general, right? So there's obviously going to be a disadvantage there. Did it, was it a glaring disadvantage in the third quarter of this game? Yeah, of course it was. So that being said, you know, if you want to blame the block punt and like that's what changed the game, that's not what changed the game. That's what put the stake in the, you know, in the heart, if you will. But if we're looking at really what happened in that game, and I tweeted this out with a photo of the box score before, or essentially at the same time that 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 punt block happened. And you're looking at Colts, total yards of 351 to 166, more than double the amount of yards, almost double the amount of plays, 60 to 33, right? Yards per play, of course, 5.9 to 5.0. Passing yards, right? For all this vaunted Tennessee offense and Tannehill that we talk about, you know, I acknowledge it, right? His numbers since he took over have been outstanding, but as good as they have been, we're talking about 256 yards passing, for Rivers at that point, and 99 yards passing for Tannehill. So, listen, if you want to blame the punt ret- <laughs> the punt block touchdown for why you didn't cover that game, that's fine, but that's literally covering, that's masking the fact that the side that you were on, if you were on Tennessee, if we were on Tennessee, again, we're pretending we were on Tennessee here, you know, we'd just be masking the fact that we just did a really bad job handicapping this game, right? Like, what is your handicap that's come true? in this game. Are you sitting there going like, yeah, um, so this is going to happen. We're going to stop them on fourth down a ton. Um, we're going to have really one legitimately good drive the entire game. It's going to be the first one. Uh, we're only going to score 10 points the rest of the way. We're going to have half the yards of the other team. Like if we're sitting here and we're about to talk about all these games for Sunday and Monday, and if I said to you, okay, this team's going to have double the yardage of that team. This team's going to have the double the yardage of that team. Like, there's no way you would take the team that has half the yards. So you can hop off <laughs> this sort of excuse train here and realize that if the Titans had won that game yesterday, it would have been a total fluke from a statistical and just sort of general football standpoint. Nobody with a brain would be like, yeah, I'm actually really psyched that we have half the yards. I could totally see that we'd have half the yards coming and was really looking forward to it and figured we'd win anyway, right? And so part of sifting through the betting content trash online is finding the people who don't really understand this, right? They're who we call the the dart throwers. They are just picking games by throwing darts. Their handicap is, I don't trust Philip Rivers. They don't say why they don't trust Philip Rivers, right? They just say, oh, he throws interceptions at, at times. And it's like, okay, but let's break down why he throws interceptions, right? We can't do that. That's too much to ask of anybody to do that out there. So part of sifting through that Last night after the game was kind of fun because you're talking, you're hearing people, you know, you're finding people complaining when the Sharps win, 
right? The, oh, the, the, the mythical sharps, right? And so to that, I would say, if you can't spot the sucker at the poker table, it's probably you. So it's not sharp to know how to read a box score, a stat sheet, or watch a game with a critical eye. Or maybe it is. Maybe that is sharp. And it brings me to the other football game that happened last night, and that was the one that nobody watched. And so why I want to sort of discuss this, because we didn't end up putting a bet in on this, um, talked about the game yesterday, Colorado State and Boise State, and how we were waiting to see who the Boise State quarterback was going to be, whether they were going to get their starting quarterback, whether it was going to be Jack Sears back uh, as the backup, and sort of, you know, having had Boise State the week before and watched the third stringer come in and have it just be an absolute horror show, we wanted to make sure before we bet that that's who we were going to see if we were going to bet on Colorado State. Now we get a notification that Bachmeyer, the starting quarterback, is back in, and we do the Homer Simpson back into the bush. I don't want anything to do with this game. That being said, if you bet Colorado State plus 14 and a half, and you didn't watch a second of that game, and you saw that it was 52 to 21, you'd be sitting there going, man, like I got smoked in that game. That was a really bad bet. But all you have to do is click on the box score or the or the play-by-play -play scoring drives to see that three, three kicks were blocked for, for Colorado State and returned for touchdowns. Three touchdowns on blocked kicks. So if you're going to be the Tennessee Titans guy who doesn't know how to read a box score and is going to complain about a special team's gaffe costing you that game, it's not even the right situation that night, right? Colorado State has way more, or at least Colorado State Packers, have way more to complain about because we're talking about like a 27-yarder field goal that was blocked in return for a touchdown. That's a 10-point swing right there. And two other punts that were blocked in return for a touchdown that, you know, you could make the case, obviously, if you're on the surface, 14-point swing, uh, Who's to say, you know, Boise State may have scored a touchdown on, let's say, one of those two. So that's at least a seven-point swing. So now we're talking about, you know, a very conservative estimate of a 17-point swing in a game that at plus 14 and a half, right, that's a 31-point game. And guess what? The final score was 31 points. And if you look at the box score, you can see quite clearly that total yardage was right down the middle in Colorado State, Boise State. Uh, all yards per play, basically every metric, every stat. It's not even a metric at this point. Every stat was exactly dead even with the exception of they just couldn't block <laughs> for a punt or even a short field goal. So that's one that you could complain about if you had Colorado State plus 14 and a half. Uh, luckily, we avoided it again because of the quarterback situations. But, you know, the funny thing is, like, we avoid it, avoid it because of the quarterback situation, but it had nothing to do with the game not being covered by Colorado State, right? Like, the quarterback did, uh, okay, 250 yards. Like, it wasn't some sort of outstanding performance. Again, it had nothing to do with the offenses or defenses on that team. Uh, at any rate, just worth mentioning, obviously talking about Thursday Night Football and the discrepancy but sort of between kind of knowing what you're doing and not what you're doing and, you know, why people might be surprised out there um, if, you know, because Tennessee lost. Really not all that surprising if all you have to do is look at a simple box score, either for last night or the previous game's box score. 
Let's get into Sunday's action for Week 10. Houston and Cleveland going to start us off here. And listen, I don't love this game. So you've got, obviously, two teams that nobody really wants to bet on. The game's off the board currently because of a mystery COVID positive test for Cleveland. Who knows who that could be, right? Baker Mayfield was on the list uh, during the bye week. Is it him? Uh, Maybe by the time this podcast runs and we know and we sort of know more about the situation here. So let's just talk about this game as though it's going to happen and all things are sort of on the up and up here. So fundamentally, if you like Cleveland here, you're probably a little too late. I mean, again, depends on where this reopens, but this line was minus two, minus two and a half early on in the week. It's come all the way through three, three and a half. That's a big move, right? Like that's a telling move. And why did that move happen? Well, obviously pretty significant injury report positivity when it comes from Cleveland's side of things, right? Obviously the fantasy elements of Nick Chubb coming, you know, coming back in here. Uh, Wyatt Teller, basically sort of on pace for an all pro season, number one ranked guard in pro football focuses metrics on, uh, you know, on ranking the different individual positions. And he's healthy and going to be back for Cleveland. And when he was out, when Chubb was out, it was a significant detriment to the Cleveland run game. And you had a team that was going in to those two guys' injuries running at a 200-yard per game clip. Now, again, short sample size, a lot of really bad teams to start the season, right? Cincinnati, uh, who do we have? We had Dallas in there, which was a 300-yard game. So you're gonna, it's going to be a lot easier to average 200 yards when one of your, say, four games in this subset of information is a 300-yard game against Dallas. So take that with a grain of salt, but is what it is. Without Chubb and Teller, under 100 yards per game. Now again, we're talking about games against who? Like the Steelers, uh, I believe the Colts were in there. I I might be conflating a couple of my games here, but uh, at the end of the day, obviously they're going to be much better when they've got Chubb and Teller in, right? Uh, That being said, from an offensive standpoint, are they going to be able to move the ball in sketchier weather? And you'd think that would favor the home team Cleveland, but it didn't do them any good against Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago in a game that we figured might favor them given sort of, you know, obviously Vegas plays in a dome, Cleveland sort of known for obviously playing in sketchy weather, et cetera, et cetera. And so do I want to trust Cleveland here minus three and a half? No, I don't really want to do that. Houston plus three and a half. Is Houston one of the worst teams in the league? I don't think we know the answer to that yet because the games that they're playing are either against Jacksonville, where they win, or they're against literally the who's who of the NFL, right? We're talking about Green Bay, Kansas City, Baltimore, Pittsburgh. Like, it's a laundry list of really quality teams here. So I still don't really know what to make of Houston, but I would be sort of more apt like i would lean to houston plus three and a half uh saw a stat last night forget who tweeted it out apologies to whoever did that if deshaun watson has like a pretty good game like and they gave sort of you know standard like two touchdowns 300 yards like that kind of thing and aaron Rodgers for green bay obviously you know what team he's on but you know over in that game he has say a 250 yard kind of a pedestrian game maybe one interception one touchdown that deshaun watson would be the active leader in uh, quarterback rating that's kind of an amazing stat like if you're talking about sort of you know projecting forward given that obviously 
Aaron Rodgers, as good as he is, his best days are behind him. His best days are really, really good, and that's kind of the point, right? He's built up this rating with a lot of really, really good days in his prime, and Deshaun Watson just entering his prime right now. And you watch him play as much as I did, you know, again, against Jacksonville last week. But again, sometimes when these guys aren't on prime time for a while, you know, they can fall through the cracks, and you really sort of maybe forget just how good these guys are. And in the case of Watson, you're just like, Man, this guy is really, really good. And so maybe this game comes down to the health of Miles Garrett. Is he healthy enough, right? Obviously, the bye week helped. He played some sparingly in the last two games. And, of course, these were games where the Browns almost lost to Cincinnati and did lose to Vegas. And so now they're all of a sudden they're a three-and-a-half-point favorite. From a market standpoint, Houston, you know, we didn't think they should be, but the facts, facts were they were six-and-a-half, seven-point favorites on the road to Jacksonville. Now they're three-and-a-half-point dogs here on the road to Cleveland. And you're going, okay, so that's a nine-point sort of neutral swing here if Jacksonville played Cleveland on a neutral field. They'd be nine point, like Cleveland would be nine point favorites based on that sort of element. That seems a touch high for me, given that, again, like what have we seen out of Cleveland that we absolutely need to be favoring them by more than a touchdown over anybody? So I get why this number was two and a half. I sort of understand why this number has moved up to three, three and a half based on, again, the injury stuff. That's been really good news for Cleveland. But at minus three and a half, I can't trust Cleveland here. And I'm not exactly, you know, knocking over old ladies to bet Houston at plus three and a half in this one. Next one up, Jacksonville and Green Bay. Dicey weather, you know, colder weather, sort of that frozen tundra-y type of a weather situation here. Does this mean more of a ground game? You know, it's Aaron Rodgers. So frankly, probably not, right? He can handle it. He's going to be just fine. For Jacksonville, Big time key for them is their ability to run the football. Can they replicate, you know, can James Robinson be like Dalvin Cook? And I'm not saying, you know, exactly like, but sort of in the realm of Dalvin Cook where he can run freely through the Packers defense. We hope to see that from San Francisco last week, but they kind of blew it. From a game script standpoint, right? They got behind early. Their first possession was three passes and three and out. So we didn't really see them take advantage of what we hoped that they could take advantage of when it comes to the Green Bay defense. So can Jacksonville do that? Well, it's almost... You know, are they going to outthink themselves the way San Francisco did? I don't think so, right? Because as much as we love our boy, Jake Luton... You know, they're still trying to protect the rookie quarterback. They're still going to run it a fair amount. And so uh, this could be a little bit of a lower scoring game. The total has dropped mainly because of the weather potentially. Um, Is that what's ticked this line from 14 to plus 13 and a half? Or is it just sort of the idea that 14 was always too many points for this game, right? From a market standpoint, it went from 14 to 13 and a half really quick and has gone through the whole week you know, accumulating Green Bay tickets here, but is still sitting at 13 and a half. So, you know, when you look at Green Bay's schedule here, have they won games by double digits? Yes, but they were never asked to as far as like what the bar that they needed to jump over before the game even started with, right? And so, you know, Jags games have gotten away from them late, but that was... You know, in different circumstances, whether it's, you know, you want to blame Gardner Minshew and some reckless, you know, quarterbacking there, 
or you know maybe them just in general not playing as conservative as they're sort of should be doing with Luton as the quarterback. So I think a little bit more conservative play is actually going to help out when it comes to Jacksonville covering this number. Uh, again, this game on the schedule for Green Bay feels very sort of afterthought-ish, if you know what I mean. Like it's just this game that's in the middle of the schedule where it's, you know, we've got division games coming up, um, other sort of NFC showdown games. And it's like, okay, let's just get out of here without getting anybody hurt and is there a possibility that Jacksonville can score enough points to kind of keep it close enough where we're looking at a 27 to 14 type of a game here and if this game is a 20 point game do we think that Jacksonville has enough quote-unquote firepower or the sort of functional quarterback if you will to sort of pour in a late touchdown with five minutes to go and then have Green Bay kind of wash out the clock here with a 10-point win. Like, I think there's multiple different ways here that Jacksonville can cover this game. So I like Jacksonville plus 13.5 here in a game that, you know, obviously a lot of people loving, still loving betting Green Bay. And, you know, hard to blame them, especially off a primetime performance like last Thursday. But again, you're looking at them playing a team in San Francisco that is quite wounded. Next up in the one o'clock window, and how fun is this one o'clock window going to be? Only five games with the Masters going on. And of course, when I say how fun is the one o'clock window going to be, really it means how fun is the four o'clock window going to be when it comes to six games there. Uh, Washington and Detroit, no line. Hasn't been a line all week. That seems like a really bad sign for Matt Stafford. Uh, you know, normally we sort of get this sort of hidden... Not the hidden, but like the underground inklings of one guy playing, one guy not playing, et cetera, et cetera, will buy what the line gets posted at. And maybe it comes off the board here and there based on news. But this is one where obviously the odds makers go like there's a pretty big difference between Matt Stafford and Chase Daniel starting this game to the tune of the contest line right now is minus three and a half. To me, again, that seems like it's going to be a lean towards Chase Daniel playing at this point for the Lions. Given that you've blown all these games, lost all these games, why would you put a guy, your alleged fran franchise quarterback here, why would you put him out in this game that at this point, these games are getting more and more meaningless here by the day? So I expect to see Daniel. I expect this line to sort of reopen at three and a half, something along those lines. And... You know, minus six for me was sort of the line with Stafford, and I was going to probably like Washington. I don't know that if this line is minus three and a half, that that's going to necessarily take me off Washington. As scary as that sort of sounds, right? And part of it is, do I feel like Detroit has sort of quit on this season? It certainly seems that way. If you watch them play last week, that was pretty gross by and large. No Galladay. We obviously talk about that all the time. That's not happening. And the Washington football team what do we like about the Washington football team like as crappy as they are and they are crappy they're still trying and Alex Smith starting he's getting a full week of practice with the starters right so more better communication with the Terry McLaurins of the world um, honing in some accuracy maybe don't think that they're going to have five turnovers I'd like to think that they're not going to have five turnovers so with this game sort of being off the board especially from a contest standpoint it's a very under the radar type of a game right like no one's thinking like can't wait to bet the Detroit Washington game this week so if there ends up being a number that's posted that we can sort of take advantage of from just 
people's disinterest in this game. Uh, I think that's going to be something that we do here. Washington's defense still pretty good, right? From a yards per game standpoint, top five, top six in the league. And again, when you're dealing with potentially a backup quarterback with you know kind of a shady wide receiver group, and of course a run game that just hasn't been able to work all season long here, uh, I actually really like Washington in this spot that not a people are not a ton of people are going to be clamoring to bet on the Washington football team. Plus, it should be mentioned, you know, in this COVID season, I kind of think teams are going to quit a little bit earlier than maybe they already, you know, they used to in the past, right? Like used to play it out for a you know bunch of different reasons but you know this covid sort of gives everybody an excuse for everything and in this case you know that might be happening earlier and earlier this season one team that has not quit the new york giants and people love betting the new york giants cuz they keep covering that being said not this week, I don't think. Uh, and it, listen, I'm not that psyched <laughs> about the concept of betting on Carson Wentz. If you caught the On Blast Podcast Network show that uh, I did with Sheldon Alexander, I compared Carson Wentz to an insane person getting away with murder um, due to you know getting off by uh, you know insanity. Um, and so because that's his, the that's the decisions that this guy makes, right? They're just completely insane. But you're getting the healthiest version of of the Eagles that you're going to get all season long, which means less pressure on wins and not even just, you know, theoretical pressure, you know, or actual pressure, but everything, right? Like less to do for him on his shoulders, but also literally like his offensive line should be the healthiest it's been. He's going to have the different outlets in the Miles Sanders's of the world. He's going to have more wide receivers available to his disposal, if you will. Right, another another week of Dallas Goddard, obviously coming off of a bye week, dodged that bullet against the Danucci-led Dallas Cowboys, all of that stuff. And when you're looking at this Giants team, this recent sort of stretch here of covering these games is just a ton of smoke and mirrors, right? Every single game, they get out yardaged by more than 100 yards. So, but, you know, when you're handicapping these games, you're going, okay, what's going to happen here? You know, it doesn't even really matter the opponent. You know that you're going in at a hundred less yards than the other team, and so it's like, okay, let's just start off with two, you know, possessions each, and the Giants don't get a yard and have to punt on their two possessions, and the Eagles get a total of a hundred yards on their two possessions, and so whether they split that up into one possession where they get a hundred yards, of course, you know, maybe it'd be seventy-five yards because they started the twenty-five, and they score a touchdown. And then the next one, they get 25 yards and they kick, you know, and force that bad field position for the Giants, you know, or they just get 50 yards exactly on each possession. That's six points, you know, two field goals, six points in theory, if, uh, you know, if, if Jake can make a kick. So the point is, is like there's, you're already kind of starting six points or seven points ahead, no matter who the team is, because of, you know, that you're going to get a hundred extra yards or more against this Giants team. Like, you could say whatever you want about the defense playing well or the offense and, like, oh, the weapons and this sort of thing. Like, sure. But you you already know because every single game has gone the exact same way when it comes to the yardage battle. We look back at the Thursday night game, talked about that, obviously at length, way back when, but all week, it's, okay, well, you know, they should have beat 
the Eagles if it wasn't for like the dramatics at the end? Well, the, there should have never been dramatics, right? The Eagles were the much better team that entire night, and that was sort of a half-assed, injury-riddled Eagles team. And so if we just get less stupid play from the Eagles, this thing should be a relative blowout. And it's, of course, you know, doesn't matter that this game's a road game because the Giants don't win at home even at the best of times, right? And the only team that they beat, the only team that Daniel Jones beats is the Washington football team. And that's not this sort of exaggeration. That's literally the truth. Like he's won one other game against a different team. That was the Tampa Bay game back, you know, a billion years ago feels like at this point but that shootout against Tampa that sort of gave him the nickname Danny Dimes and kind of forced Eli Manning finally out of the starting spot in New York and then ever since it's only Washington that he's going that he's been able to beat up it's a sort of statistical anomaly it's very confusing that he's actually been able to beat Washington in the three or four matchups that they've had but it's still the truth, and again, no, he's not good at home. He's not good at, against teams that aren't Washington. Why would I be, you know, willing to take only three, three and a half points here with the Giants, right? Like, fortunately for us, the sort of smoke and mirrors element has created this value spot for Philadelphia and seeing Carson Wentz on primetime so frequently the last few weeks and just being terrified of what he might do next. Like all of that has sort of created this, this sort of underlying value here. But now that the Eagles are healthy, I'd like to think that we're going to get this team that, you know, before the season start sort of felt like this nine and seven-y type team. And maybe even 10 and six, sort of depending on how you felt about Carson Wentz. And no, their record is not going to get to 9-7. and seven. That's clearly not going to happen. But they could at least play here in the next two months of the quality of a 9-7 and seven type of a team, make the playoffs here at 7-8-1 and one potentially, uh, maybe even worse, who knows, and, you know, and at least have a full roster. And so I love the Eagles here, as scary as that is to say out loud. I mean, we're talking about a team that gave up eight yards per play to Washington last week, <laughs> right? And, you know, gave up eight yards per play, luckily had five turnovers, and that's why they won the game. So a lot of different reasons here why the Giants are overvalued. But we move on to Tampa Bay and Carolina here. First matchup, seven-point game in Tampa. So sort of, you know, very easy to go, okay, well, now that it's in Carolina, Let's take a couple points off that and let's make this line five. People love the Teddy Bridgewater thing, right? The market absolutely loves Teddy. Problem is, right, the stats that we quote about him being an underdog, being amazing, you know, 19 and four this, 18 and three that, those are on the road. Those are as a underdog of seven and a half points. Those are as a big underdog, et cetera, et cetera, right? Now you're looking at this situation where it's, Everybody knows the numbers, everybody loves the numbers, everybody's now willing to follow those numbers and bet Carolina, which automatically creates value going against Carolina, right? Standard sort of market behavior. Part two is, you know, what are we going to get out of Tampa Bay? Well, they got absolutely smoked last week, right? Sort of historically beat down, especially, you know, basically in that first half. And so I like taking teams who got embarrassed in their last game if they don't stink. <laughs> if they stink, then why, you know, they're going to be embarrassed a lot of the times, right? But if they're a really good team, a team that I still think can contend for the Super Bowl in Tampa Bay here, 
I expect them to come out and play one of their best games of the season, and that's going to be big trouble here, I think, for Carolina. So that first matchup, talked about it, right? But that was without Godwin. Obviously, that was without Antonio Brown, and that was so early in the season here. I think week two, if not week three, you know, Gronk, not a main part of the offense here. As for last week's beatdown, right? Ali Marpet, the, you know, middle of that line, probably, maybe I'd say probably their best offensive lineman. He's out of that game. And it's pressure city up the middle for Tom Brady. Well, he's going to be back this game. So now we can get a little bit more of the usual offensive diet here from Tom Brady. And I don't see Carolina causing that same pressure, right? I love Brian Burns on the outside, but there's ways to sort of stop him. And with Tampa Bay having enough weapons, they can keep Gronk in to help block on him if that even is necessary. And so I think you're going to get Tampa being able to absolutely blowtorch the Carolina secondary. And now you're looking at Teddy Bridgewater here to keep up. And he was able to keep up with Kansas City last week because Kansas City, out with, you know, without Chris Jones and Carolina's gotten McCaffrey back and they're able to move the ball and do these slow, sustained drives that, you know, cliche but keeps Patrick Mahomes off the field don't see that happening against Tampa's defense and that's just a massive you know difference here in this game is that Tampa's defense not only are they better than Kansas City's but they're much better than Carolina's Tampa Bay's offense going to move the ball relatively easily here I think I don't see this being a particularly close game and I will take Tampa Bay here at under six points even minus six if we absolutely have to but minus five and a half, certainly a play for me here for Tampa Bay, even on the road in Carolina. And let's be honest, right? It's going to be essentially a neutral atmosphere. Carolina, it's not like they've just defended home turf here no matter what. This is the biggest underdog they've been at home, right? Underdog to Oakland, you know, three-point underdog at home to o- Oakland. I did it again. Las Vegas to start the season. Uh, you know, they don't cover that. They lose by whatever it was, 10, I believe, to Chicago. Uh, at home so you know again it's not like they're defending the house you know the relatively empty house uh, in the case of uh, Carolina here so uh, Tampa Bay minus five and a half certainly going to be a play come Sunday and maybe even a contest play and just like that we are into the four o'clock games so bizarre but I love it uh denver and las vegas here interesting little line move right opens five five and a half we talk about how vegas on tuesday you know that's a really high bar now for vegas right we have not seen this situation where they have been giving points to this degree uh defensive issues for denver obviously jammed us up last week as boye and callahan their top two cornerbacks were out against atlanta that's obviously a really big deal against atlanta it's not a it's not going to be as much of a big deal against the Raiders but b there was both those guys look to be both coming back right in practice on Thursday that's you know one of these injury situations here that we absolutely have to keep an eye on come you know the rest of Friday and Saturday are those guys going to be both in the lineup because that's obviously a key to the Denver defense at this point so that being said do we absolutely love Denver No, and that line has come down to four in part, I think, because of that injury news of those two guys coming back and maybe just really the market sort of looking around and going, sorry, why are the Raiders favored by five and a half against anybody? Against a Denver team that has shown at the very least a willingness not to quit. And so is the back door potentially wide open? Absolutely. That being said, if we're just basing 
you know, our play here on the trend of the potential backdoor and Denver kind of not showing up in the first half, why wouldn't we, you know, A, potentially just bet Las Vegas in the first half, but really moreover, just kind of wait and grab Denver, you know, plus a handful of points over and over and over again as this game goes on. Talked about it on Tuesday as this sort of being the best strategy than just taking the four right now, because I think, Again, based on recent trends, and maybe you split your unit where you start off and you do a little bit of a half unit situation on Denver plus four. Maybe you sort of get a little Las Vegas first half going. Now that it's plus four, we might be, you know, I think we'll be able to get first half minus two and a half um, on Las Vegas and then just go hard on Denver second quarter, whatever, you know, whenever they sort of, (laughs) whenever Vegas stops scoring on Denver uh, might be the right time to sort of attack that. From that standpoint, uh, Chargers and Miami. Uh, this one, again, talked about on Tuesday. Nothing's really changed for me other than the fact that the market has, you know, risen, if you will. Like it has made its point. Uh, it has gone the opposite way that we had hoped, but the way that I think we agree with here. And the Miami bandwagon talked about it. Like I'm driving that thing. I'm riding around in it. And then I look back and I realize, holy, there's a ton of people on this bandwagon. We weren't really planning to have this many people on the bandwagon. The tires, the wheels are getting a little loose. They may come off at any given point, right? The Miami offense, pretty good last week, you know, on the surface, points scored, all that kind of stuff, but they get a defensive touchdown to start the game, which again, we were psyched about. Don't get me wrong. We were all over that. We were happy to get that sort of bonus. Those points count too, but 5.6 yards per play on offense, a little bit subpar, right? You want to be in the high fives. And so, okay, like that's all right. Three point yards, you know, 3.0 yards per play against the Rams. We've explained that away as game situation and that's fine. But what kind of game situation are we going to get here against the Chargers? A team that, for as much as we trash them all the time, based on blowing late leads, they do start well, right? Like, they they do often start well. They are functional. They are consistent, right? We know what we're going to get from a Chargers team here, where Miami, like, maybe things are getting a little too high on the hog here. The line is now reflecting a more accurate depiction of what these teams are statistically, as, you know, listen, we've seen this line move and it's gone from a, you know, a team that's five and three, that's two and a half point favorites. And it's moved in the direction of the two and six team that's on the road against sort of the, you know, hot team on the street. Like that should tell you all you need to know, right? And if Thursday night's game didn't tell you that the Colts were the right side from a sort of pregame analytics statistical angle standpoint, this is kind of the exact same thing, isn't it? Like, I wouldn't be shocked if the Chargers ended up favored come Sunday and everybody sort of sits around, right? The stooges, the uh, the dart throwers, if you will, and we'll be all complaining about how Anthony Lynn is favored on the road or like, what's all this money coming in on the Chargers and doot, 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 right? And it's like, and they'll refer to like the one time they were right when the home team, you know, the version of the Dolphins here, you know, won. And it's like, yeah, but like, dude, three quarters of the time this money move is an indicator that the right side is is that side and so reality is though we have to trust anthony lynn to win a game here but 
and the Chargers as a whole, to be honest with you. So what we're going to be looking for over the course of the next couple days, right, is making sure that Joey Bosa is going to play. We know that the Dolphins are going to be without uh, Preston Williams. There's some offensive line issues there as well, which, of course, if Bosa comes back, that's sort of a, uh, a salivating type concept for the Chargers. Uh, and we know the Chargers can move the ball on offense, and it's not like as much as the defense for the Dolphins has created turnovers and gotten touchdowns off of those turnovers, it's still given up a ton of yards per play here, right? Like we were talking, you know, I think it was what high sixes uh, in the case of Arizona, if not into the sevens. So it's not like they're just flat out, you know, blanketing people out here now. Who knows? Is Xavier Howard going to get called for all the pass interferences this week? You know, there's always these uh, you know, variables, if if you will. But uh, I think the Chargers are going to be the right side in this one. Um, we'll see how they blow it, right? Because that's just what they do. But it, that's the narrative of it, right? And we can't get sort of sucked into the narrative because as much as people, you know, crap on Anthony Lynn, he's still five and three against the spread this season. So for all the two and six record, you know, is what it is from a spread standpoint, and that's all we care about. In this case, it just so happens that those two things mirror each other. We're going to need them to win the game outright in order to cover this spread now that it's down to one and veering close to pick them. As for Buffalo and Arizona, obviously Arizona, the opponent of the Dolphins last week, moved the ball on offense against the Dolphins. Expect them to do that this week, right? Buffalo, we talk about it all the time. If they've got good conditions, that offense is as good as anybody. And so I'm sitting here looking at this game, and I'm just back and forth, right? This is going to be literally this back and forth game that I can't really see either defense stopping anybody. So will it just come down to turnovers? Buffalo obviously were able to create turnovers last week against Russell Wilson. There's no reason to say that they can't do it against Kyler Murray. And yes, Kyler Murray, terrifying to bet against, but he had 100 yards rushing last week, which is the terrifying element to Kyler Murray. He hit a massive bomb to Christian Kirk, which is the other terrifying element of Kyler Murray. And they still lost the game outright. So it's not like, oh, they're terrifying to bet against and, you know, because of these two reasons and that means they're going to win the game because they get these things going for them and they still don't win the game. You've got an injury issue with Buda Baker. They're saying that he's going to play, but we're talking about a safety here who, one, is sort of the key to the team and two, a groin injury over the course of the game. Like, is that something you want to rely on holding up if you're going to bet on this Arizona Cardinals defense to get a turnover, to get a stop, something along those lines against Buffalo? We saw Tua able to get out of the pocket and scramble a little bit. Josh Allen, certainly capable of that. A more intimidating runner than Tua is out in the uh, open field. So from a coaching standpoint, right, like Cliff Kingsbury, listen, 90% of the coaches in the league at this point are going into the sort of trash bin of can't trust them, don't want to bet against them, or don't want to bet on them uh, at any point in time, especially a close game here. There's a chance we end up getting Buffalo plus three. It hasn't moved in the same way that some of these other games have moved from two and a half closer to pick them. If we're able to do that, that makes this decision much, much easier at plus three. Injury issues are on both sides. You know, even a little bit of COVID stuff. But the Buda Baker one is the one we're looking for uh, when it comes to Arizona. Obviously, we want to make sure as many guys are healthy from the Buffalo standpoint as possible. The practice and injury reports are looking a little bit better over the last couple of days here. Tredavious White was 
I don't want to say necessarily a dominant force, but certainly held up last week. That's going to be critical when it comes to, you know, messing around with DeAndre Hopkins and forcing Kyler Murray to look elsewhere with some of his targets, right? And that's still, you know, he's still capable of finding other people, but obviously the Hopkins um, element is the key to that offense, being able to move the ball in key situations, right? Kyler Murray can't run for every single first down on third down, especially when we're looking at third and five, third and six, right? Much easier to do on third and one, third and two. Uh, and so Hopkins needs to be at his best in order to sort of compete with the Bills offense. That's a little bit more multidimensional, right? They can run the ball if uh, if they choose to, right? And by the way, from a coaching standpoint, right? Sean McDermott, you know, we watch him go, okay, you know what? We don't even want to run the ball next week against Seattle. Like, complete waste of time. And it's like, okay, that's the type of coaching decision-making I'm looking to back. Like, I want to know that guys know what they're doing. And if you watch the Seattle Seahawks and you go, why don't I just throw on every down? You're telling me I know what I'm doing. When you're Cliff Kingsbury and you've got Kyler Murray and it's, oh, yeah, like fourth and one, let's kick the field goal here. You're telling me you don't know what you're doing. And so you can love Kyler Murray, you can love Hopkins, you can love all of that stuff, but that's already built into the line. So are people talking about Kingsbury being an idiot? Are people talking about McDermott being really smart here? Yes, to a degree, but not sort of the average better sort of getting in uh, on these different uh, games, right? And on these different prices. And so hopefully this number goes up to three because it's easy to sort of look at that game last week for the Cardinals and go, oh, here's the, this is the bounce back spot after they lost to the Dolphins. The reality is they might just be a mediocre team, right? They might just be kind of an eight and eight team that, you know, got lucky and were able to stay in the game against Seattle, which is obviously sort of their, you know, big game of the year. But let's not forget they've lost to the Dolphins at home and they've lost to the Detroit Lions, at home. So this idea that like there's some sort of guarantee that they're going to bounce back because, you know, as if that they played necessarily badly last week, they didn't, right? Like the point is the stuff that you're hoping to get from Arizona, they got in spades last week and they still didn't win the game. So there's a billion different ways to handicap games, right? Like that's one of the ways. And that's why it's so frustrating when I see people just sort of throwing out picks where it's like, okay, but what's your handicap on the game? And it's like the laziest thing possible. Like I like Derrick Henry. I don't trust Bill Rivers, like stuff like that. And it's like, there's so many different ways to do it. And so in that case, you're doing it by going, okay, you know, what's the best this team can look? And was it that, was it last week? And how did it go? right? Because can Arizona look better than last week? In the case of Cincinnati and Pittsburgh here, this one's fascinating to me. Obviously, the line has come down. The line has come off the board because it opens nine and a half. And let's put it this way, right? The lines makers know that people like Joe Burrow. They know that people call him, you know, Joey Covers or whatever. These are not secrets, right? They know that the Bengals are 6-2 and two against the spread this season. They know that people want to bet on the Bengals. As sort of crazy as that sounds, based on our recent to forever history of the Bengals, that phrase does exist, right? You're thinking right now, man, 8.5, 9.5, that would have been sweet. And you're not wrong, that would have been sweet to get in because I don't think we're ever going to see that number again, even if this reopens with a full, healthy Ben Roethlisberger. But we're looking now at the contest line being minus seven. So 
we've dropped two and a half points for a Steelers team here that, assuming Ben Roethlisberger plays, if he doesn't play, obviously it's a completely different situation, but assuming that Ben Roethlisberger plays, does he really need practice at this point? Like, in his career, given how many weeks it's, you know, he's, you know, how many games he's had where during the week it was like, oh man, my knee, my ankle, my face, my elbow, my shoulder, like, He's, you know, sitting out of practice all week. Hopefully he makes a go of it. Like, that happens all the time. So does he really need practice here? Is missing Vance McDonald mean anything? So basically all we're doing here is we're going, okay, we just really love Cincinnati as this underdog. And I get it. I've been on Cincinnati a fair amount this season. But at this point, I have to ask the question, did the line drop too far? Is minus seven too low? Is this now officially the public underdog? Because much as, you know, the public favorite is the sort of terrifying concept, the public underdog is a far more terrifying concept. If you can talk yourself into really easily an underdog, they are ceasing to become valuable, right? Because the line is moving towards them and, you know, they are the worst team, (laughs) right? Uh, It's very rare that we get an underdog that's actually the better team. Happens from time to time, but in this case... They're certainly not the better team. And so, okay, the injury issues. What are we looking at from Cincinnati's standpoint? Well, remember two weeks ago, last time they played, they played the Titans. They were missing three of their offensive linemen. Didn't end up being an issue, right? Tennessee couldn't take advantage of that. Well, let's talk about last night for a second. What about Tennessee's game last night would make you believe that Cincinnati did anything special to keep pressure off of Joe Burrow? Do you know what I mean? Like, they weren't able to get pressure on Phil Rivers. They weren't able to get pressure on Joe Burrow. I'm here to tell you, I think if Phil Rivers and the Colts played the Steelers, the Steelers would get pressure on Phil Rivers, right? Like, that's a comparable defense to Baltimore, isn't it? Especially from a defensive line, like, pressure-getting standpoint. And so if we're looking at this and we're going, okay, well, let's sort of compare and contrast this offense, So Cincinnati, game one, 4.4 yards per play. That's not great against the Chargers, a team that can get pressure. 4.0 against Cleveland, right? Remember that Thursday night debacle where they somehow... And listen, possibly still remains that they backdoor the same way they did to Cleveland, where they're giving up seven yards per play and they're only getting four yards per play. And they still keep, you know, still get the game within five. 4.3 yards per play in the tie game against Philadelphia. Remember, you're looking for at a league average of about 5.8 yards per play. So we're not even remotely close to being league average in these games that are ending in three-point game, five-point game, and a tie. 7.1 yards per play in their next game against Jacksonville. Oh, okay. Is Jacksonville's defense in any way in the same neighborhood as Pittsburgh's defense? No, they're not. Next game up at Baltimore, the closest thing to a comparable game for Cincinnati on their entire schedule, right? Outdoor road game against the top team in the division or a top team in the division in the conference, if you will. How many yards per play do you think Cincinnati averaged in that game? 3.2 yards per play against Baltimore, getting absolutely smoked off the field. Now, it was a one o'clock game. It was a blowout. You probably didn't watch it at all. You might have even forgotten that it ever happened. Because since then, they were 5.5 against Indy, right? In that game that they led 21-0. You'll recall they also blew that lead and never scored another touchdown after the first quarter. 
right? So a lot of that 5.5 was built on one quarter of football against a pretty sleepy Indianapolis team. 6.4 yards per play. Okay, now we're talking against Cleveland at home when Miles Garrett was injured. Okay, so we're building up sort of cover credibility here, right? 5.5 against Indy, hang on for dear life, you know, big underdog, and, you know, we get under the number. shouldn't say big number, but, like, you know, pretty decent underdog. Same sort of story with Cleveland, right? Like, you know, you know, covered the number in part because Cody Parkey, you know, yacked the extra point. But, you know, the idea that Cincinnati could have won that game, right? Like, yeah, of course they could have. Sure, I totally get that. Like, but it's Cleveland. 5.3 yards per play against Tennessee. So as much as we go, oh man, like they beat Tennessee, seven point underdog, they could do that again to Pittsburgh. Um, you know, I want, you know, I want Cincinnati plus the points here. You have to sit back and you go, okay, that upset against Tennessee, they were still only 5.3 yards per play against a Tennessee team that we just talked about isn't exactly getting pressure on the quarterback. So I would have expected at least a league average offensive performance from Cincinnati there, right? Like if I had asked you beforehand, you know, was their performance against Tennessee league average or better or worse? You'd probably say better. You'd been content with league average. You wouldn't have said worse. And so 5.3 against Tennessee at home. And last night, the Colts go for 6.2 yards per play against Tennessee. So a full yard better against Tennessee last night were the Colts. And so what am I supposed to expect from the Cincinnati offense in truth, right, against a Pittsburgh defense? That's before, obviously, we get into the quarterback issue with with Pittsburgh. And that's the thing that's up in the air, obviously, about this game, right? But you see how this sort of the mythology of the Bengals gets created that gets you sort of more and more interested in this team getting all of these points, Right. And it creates sort of the public. Like, have you heard anybody say, man, I really love the Steelers this week? Because there isn't really any reason to love the Steelers. or There's nothing, you know, the, the next sentence doesn't really exist. It's not, I really love the Steelers because blank. And it's not because of the game last week against the Cowboys. That's certainly not the case. But doesn't that create value as well? And it's certainly not like, oh, the offense is really humming right now. Because that's not really the case. And it's certainly not like Ben Roethlisberger looks super healthy because he's hobbling around with two, you know, banged up knees and, you know, may or may not have COVID at this point. We'll see come whatever Saturday or Sunday morning. And it's very easy to say, well, I like Cincinnati in this game because, right, they just pulled an upset as an underdog. Uh, They give, you know, Joey covers six and two against the spread. But that's six and two against the spread as a team that nobody believed in. Now it's this team. Now they're they have to go for the second half of the season. And listen, they may go six and two against the spread for the rest of the season. But now they're going into the rest of this season, the last eight games of the season, as the team that people actually believe in. The bar is not overly high necessarily, but people are still believing in this Bengals team. And so for me, minus seven, maybe it reopens and people keep banging away at it. We get minus six and a half, something along those lines. I have to sit back and look at this and go like, what do we really like here about Cincinnati given the opponents that they've played and the metrics that we've seen on the field? So coming out of a bye week, obviously a lot healthier, right? More reasons to like Cincinnati, but these are very superfluous sort of obvious reasons, right? They're sort of first paragraph type reasons. It's when you get deeper into some of these numbers and go, yeah, okay, they covered, you know, if you had three and a half against the Chargers, they covered by only getting 4.4 yards per play. 
if you had them, you know, like most, you know, at six points against Cleveland, five points, whatever the you know line was, at 4.0 yards per play, they still covered. At 4.3 yards per play, but they they tie against Philly. Is that what you want to rely on going into a game? Like it's nice to sort of get out of dodge, like the Tennessee backers might have gotten be- to do last night if they hadn't had such punting issues. But it's not something predictive. It's not something that you want to be doing going forward, given we have the numbers right here. Like, I'm not making this stuff up. It exists. So we'll see what we can get out of Pittsburgh. We'll see what happens with regards to all the COVID testing and all of that kind of thing. These things are the stuff that we talk about on Sunday afternoon, because a lot changes, I should say Sunday morning, a lot changes between sort of Friday afternoon and Sunday morning when it comes to these games. Moving along here, we got Seattle and the Rams. Bye week for the Rams, right? And we go, okay, well, what happened before the bye week? Because we always kind of want to at least lean at the start to the opposite of where, where the team was with regard to the bye week. And I think this is a really ideal situation from a bye week standpoint here for the Rams because we go into the bye week with a, that sort of embarrassing loss to Miami where the offense was getting absolutely smoked by the, the Dolphins' defense to the tune of two touchdowns. They played pretty well on defense, and they played pretty well moving the ball on offense, right? But just a ton of turnovers. So you have sort of a two-part thing here where you go, okay, the Rams feel like SH, right? Like they feel really bad, and they have to sort of chew that loss for two weeks. We love that if we like the Rams this week. Number two is, are they a good team, right? In general, yeah, I think the Rams are a pretty good team. So is it just a matter of like, well, they got embarrassed because they stink? I don't think that's the case. So we like that too. How did they actually play from sort of a metric standpoint in that last game? Well, defense was actually pretty good, right? Three point yards per, you know, yards per play for Miami. That's not bad, right? A lot of it's game script. Sure, maybe, it, you know, what if it was 4.5? We'd still be okay with that from a defensive standpoint, right? You give them an extra 50% more yards on their plays and we'd still be content with how the Rams played defensively offensively ton of yards ton of plays right ran 90 some odd plays ton of tape ton of things that we can look at (laughs) over the course of two weeks ran a bunch of plays so i like that they you know they come out of the spy week and they go okay like this is a really big game right and obviously they're sitting there waiting for seattle who got absolutely beat up last week and it was a terrible spot for seattle and it's not sort of this Um, big picture, woe is Seattle situation, right? Like we still like Seattle as much as we ever did long-term. Problem is just because you go and you have this bad game for Seattle in this bad spot, it doesn't mean you're going to automatically turn around and do really well the next week. Especially when this team is rested, it's sitting there, it's watched this game. And I'd like to think it sat there and watched the Buffalo game plan and said, man, we can just throw the ball all over the yard here. As if the Rams didn't already know that, but I'd like to, I'd like to think that they do. But if they didn't, like that was a stark reminder that, oh, wait, like we should just throw the ball 50 times. You're sitting there like, do you really want Jared Goff throwing the ball 50 times? And I would say normally no. Because he's going to get sacked. He's going to throw interceptions. He's going to do all of those things, right, under pressure. Because, you know, you don't want to deal with Jared Goff when he's getting pressured, when he's off schedule, when he has to make more than one or two reads. Does that sound like something the Seattle defense is capable of doing right now? Isn't that the type of thing that, listen, we were on Seattle against San Francisco two weeks ago. And their offense showed out, did a great job, took a big lead. 
you know, did they take their foot off the metaphorical gas pedal? Sure, right? But like, is that even really a thing? Like there's no actual gas pedal. That's why it's metaphorical. And so Nick Mullins ends up going for two touchdowns in sort of garbage time, admittedly, but the garbage time is throwing time. So San Francisco's problem in that game is that they did what San Francisco does, is they run the ball and they try to, you know, run their offense. And then when it came to Nick Mullins, just throw it around for a while, see if we can get back in this game, that actually worked. Like, think about that. Nick Mullins worked for San Francisco in that game. So if Nick Mullins can work in that game, why can't Jared Goff work in that game? You look at it from a market standpoint, right? Everybody and their dogs still bet in Seattle. Didn't matter last week. Looked like garbage. Turning the ball over. Not a big deal. Fine with it. Give me Seattle. Plus one, plus two, whatever we got. Like, when you look at this matchup and you're thinking about who to bet on, remind yourself, at its very core, the Rams are favored in this game. Like, they're the favorites. Are people betting it like the Rams are in that actual de literal definition, like that they're favored by people? No, right? Like people are betting this underdog as though like we're not, we're getting a bargain on the Mariners. They're on, or Mariners, on the Seahawks. We're getting a bargain. This is fantastic. Let's, let's get loose, everybody. This is awesome. Well, the Rams are still the favorite. They're still, the expectation is that the Rams still win this game. So are the Rams going to be stubborn about the run game, right? Which they can tend to be, right? Like they keep wanting to set up the pass with the run where it's like half the work is already done, McVay. Like it's, the, the pass is already set up. When Seattle shows up defensively, the pass has been set up. You're, you're, you're all set. We don't need to bother. For the, we don't have to do the Phil Rivers like handing the ball to Jonathan Taylor for the first quarter to set up the pass. Already set up. The team stinks at this. So hopefully that's the case. Seattle defensively, at the best of times, obviously not great. How about you take two of their cornerbacks out? Because that's the situation right now. Seattle is going to, or it looks it looks like they're going to be without their two top cornerbacks. Is that something that seems like you'd want to have to deal with, given that you're already plugging holes here from a pass defense standpoint? Doesn't seem like it to me. Recent history, right? We got like coaching. Let's talk McVeigh versus Pete Carroll. If you can't get fired up about that, what can you get fired up about? Last season, you know, off season for the Rams, right? Like not a very good season for them. Um, obviously coming off the Super Bowl, in your mind's eye, you're like, how badly, you know, they were pretty bad. Didn't, weren't they six and 10? No, no, they were like, I think they're nine and seven. They're actually pretty good. And they snapped a five game Seattle Seahawks winning streak in the middle of the season. So it was as good as it was getting for Seattle last year. During that five game win streak, they went to LA and they scored, guess how many offensive touchdowns? And this is a team that had Russell Wilson playing. They had their wide receivers, right? They had Lockett. They had Metcalf, which is essentially all they've got now. How many offensive touchdowns did they have on that Sunday night football game? The answer is zero. Jerry Goff threw a pick six, and that was the only touchdown that Seattle had the entire game. Two field goals on top of that. And the Rams win relatively easily in one of those classic Sunday night games, right? Where you're looking and you got Seattle, five game, five wins in a row. Everybody's on Seattle. Everybody's loving Seattle. And then guess what? Sunday night football, you know, rears its ugly head and the Rams win the game. Classic, right? You probably don't even remember. You probably wiped it from your memory. So we're looking at a Hawks team that's consistently overvalued going in 
as you know, short underdog to a team that might be as good, might be even better if we're talking about both sides of the ball. Because by the way, Rams pretty good defensively. And they've seen that, you know, they, they're familiar with the works of Russell Wilson and that offense, and they've been fine with stopping it. And so there isn't that fear element there either. And if the Bills can do it, and the Rams have been able to do it in the past, why can't they do it again? So the more I look into this game, I go, what would I be afraid of here in laying that short price with the Rams? I'd love minus one, and you can get that over at Sports Interaction right now. Uh, it's minus two in the contest, but that still might be worth a shot. I just think this is just yet another kind of rough spot here for the Seahawks. And I'm not saying that they're a bad team. I'm just saying that they have a critical hole to the team. And just because they've lost two games in a row, or excuse me, two game, two of their last three games here, you know, doesn't mean that they automatically get right. There's no reason for the Rams to be their get right spot in this game. I like the Rams minus two or better in this one. The other thing with regards to Seattle is like they keep adding players and a lot of them are, you know, they get Jamal Adams back. Great. He's really good in run defense. You know, they're all oh, Damian Snacks Harrison might be in the game. Okay, great. He's great at run defense. It's like, okay, the run defense keeps getting better and better and better, but it's becoming less and less relevant. And so sure, they're getting guys back. That's great. San Francisco, on the other hand, goes to New Orleans, and they're not really getting anybody back. I mean, they're getting a couple of guys back, but by and large, right, from, you know, you had the COVID guys who were out, and you're getting them back this week. And it was sort of easy to say, oh, this Thursday night game, like, look at all the players that San Francisco's missing. But a lot of those guys were injured, not not COVID, right? Like, we were sort of giving them credit, you know, or giving COVID credit for not having Samuel Mostert, Jimmy G, Kittle. It was like, how can they play this game? San Francisco doesn't have any players. And it's like, what, because Kendrick Bourne and Trent Williams are out? Like, you know, the old Rick Pitino thing, right? Like, Jimmy G is not walking through that door. George Kittle's not walking through that door. And as of today, it doesn't seem like Raheem Mostert, Tevin Coleman, or Debo Samuel are going to be walking through that door. And so if you're getting excited because Brandon Ayuk is back, that's awesome. I'm going to be starting him in my fantasy team because... My team's awful. Uh, But if you're getting Trent Williams back, okay, that's helpful as well. But you're still rolling Nick Mullins out there with a bunch of unfamiliar guys against this Saints team that, listen, the scary thing about the Saints is they're not going to play as well as they did last week. But they're not going to need to, I don't think. And, you know, like Richard Sherman may be back. Okay, great. Best of luck with your return after six weeks having to deal with Michael Thomas. I would take that matchup even if, you know, Richard Sherman was the healthiest man on the face of the earth, right? I'll be fine with that. So just for fun, by the way, like I looked back at last season's game because last season's game was this epic showdown, right? 48-46 was the final score. And of course, like much of the San Francisco, you know, roster at this point, you can't really take anything from it because anybody who did anything in that game, and of course, you know, Kittle had the famous play where he just, you know, ran through a guy who was face masking him and set up the game winning field goal in a game that again, 48-46. Other key name that popped up on this, in this game, Emmanuel Sanders. 150 yards, touchdown. He threw for a touchdown in that wild one. Bad news, San Francisco. Manuel Sanders is not on your team. He's on the other team. So we're not just losing players if we're San Francisco at this point. We are literally putting them on the other team. 
And we're not just doing it with Emmanuel Sanders. Quan Alexander, they just traded him to the Saints. Do you trade anybody on your team, let alone sort of a starting linebacker, a guy who can be helpful, maybe not the same level of player that he was back with Tampa Bay, but do you trade him mid-season, literally a week and a half ago, when you know you're playing that team coming up? You probably don't, <laughs> right? You could probably find another trade candidate for Quan Alexander, and it's not a team that in theory you're competing with in the NFC, you know, in the higher, you know, upper echelon of the NFC. Now, we were robbed last year of the Saints-San Francisco rematch, right? Because Minnesota knocks the Saints off, and that's what the Saints do in the playoffs. And then Minnesota goes and gets absolutely trucked by the 49ers the next week. And it was all just kind of a waste of time as San Francisco is able to skip freely into the Super Bowl, avoiding the best team other than them in the NFC. Same thing, you know, with Seattle after they had to go to, you know, Green Bay and, and, and lost in Green Bay. And so now it's okay. This season, they're, you know, people are like, oh, you know, they're four and five or whatever they are. And it's like, they really need to win this game. Okay, well, congratulations. But like, you don't just get to submit the paperwork and request a victory and, you know, have enough sort of people sign the petition and hope for the best. That's not how this works. You need Nick Mullins to go into New Orleans and outduel Drew Brees. Because even at the best of times with San Francisco's defense last year, and even a loss, that's 46 points for the Saints, right? That's, what, five touchdowns for Drew Brees on 349 yards. 11 receptions for Michael Thomas against the San Francisco defense of last year. What's going to happen this year? San Francisco just gave up a truckload to Green Bay, right? Devontae Adams. The sort of closest thing comparable to a Michael Thomas in the game. And then you might say Devontae Adams is better, and that's not really the point of the, the thing. But, like, you know, how is this going to work for San Francisco? Like, they're just, they're just going to run the ball a ton? You know, with who? Jarek McKinnon? You know, Brandon Ayuk on the, on the jet sweeps? Like, this isn't going to the Patriots and, and just running it down the Patriots' throat. That's not how this is going to work against the Saints. Like, sure, their defense has been vulnerable at times, but it's, you know, through the air. You know, Carolina was able to do well through the air, but they weren't able to run the ball. They didn't even really try. So just an atrocious matchup for the Saints here. I'm not going to sit here and tell you you need to lay the 9.5 points or the 10 because I'm not doing it, but that's because I have sort of bigger you know, uh, bigger goals, if you will, for this, you know, for this game. Uh, but just from a handicapping standpoint, right? Like that's what I'm seeing here. And I'm and, and sort of on top of that, I'm hearing enough people sort of liking San Francisco at the, at the number. And that's, that seems a little ridiculous, but I haven't heard anybody be like, yeah, Saints in a, in a wash right? That hasn't, that hasn't been getting thrown around this week. And I think it's because people are just giving San Francisco the brand credit. Speaking of brand credit, has there ever been an example of brand credit more than there was with New England minus 10 on Monday against the New York Jets, right? And like, listen, again, we had them in Survivor. That's been well documented. So it wasn't a run out and bet the Jets type situation because I was already pretty pot committed to the Patriots winning that game. And luckily they did, right? And of course, hindsight, 2020, all of that stuff, right? But we did talk about how 10 was too many points in the Monday show with Sheldon Alexander. And so now we're looking at this game and I haven't seen anybody liking the Patriots here. 
and I can't disagree with that dislike, right? Uh, this is this has to be Ravens or nothing, right? Like, I, like I would be more interested. I was, I'm going to bet the Ravens one way or another. Certainly, probably minus seven, but definitely in a tease, getting it down to minus one. And then I just want to like see how they pull this off, right? Because like I can spell a lot of different things out from a game script standpoint, right? Like I can talk ourselves into San Francisco plus seven and a half against Green Bay, right? Like if a certain game script happens, you know, that's good. You know, there's some good value there. And I know like how high could this number possibly be here, right? Like, are they really going to set it at 10? Like, I guess that's probably not going to be the situation under any circumstances, but you're getting Marlon Humphrey back for Baltimore. You, you know, Baltimore does all the stuff that the Jets don't, right? They have speed on defense, for example. They will blitz and it's not going to cost them because they have Marlon Humphrey and Jimmy Smith and Marcus Peters. They're going to goat Cam Newton into an interception at some point. And if it's Marcus Peters, it's probably going to the house. Uh, they're not, you know, the Patriots aren't going to just be able to like run the ball with ease the way that they were able to sort of chew up clock and have six, seven minute drives against the Jets. That's not going to happen. Uh, you know, it's not going to be a Joe Flacco. I've got time, so I'm just going to throw it deep and hope for the best offense. You know, the Ravens aren't going to do that. It's going to be, I'm going to pick you apart slowly but surely. I'm going to run a ton. I'm going to throw it a ton. I'm going to take off and run. Like, I'm going to hand the ball off. We're going to run all of our stuff. You're not, your, your defense is not fast enough to go sideline to sideline with us, is what the Ravens are going to do. So I'm going to, I'll bet the minus seven. I, like I said, I'll tease it down and I'll sit back and I'll go, how? How is this quote unquote square play going to lose? Like, how, like just prove it to me. Like there's certain ones where you go and like, here's the square play, here's sort of the sharp element, but like, what's the case for the sharp element, right? If people are using that sort of phrasing for last night's game, and it's like, I think I did a decent job kind of spelling out why Indianapolis was the sharp play for Thursday night. I can't, I can't make that case for the Patriots. There isn't the like, well, the Ravens, like, oh, it's like, no, I mean, are the Ravens as good as they were last year? No. Have people sort of figured out in a way, like sort of, you know, how to handle them defensively? You know, that's possibly the case. But that's not the Patriots. Like Bill Belichick could barely, barely figure out the Jets, right? Like that's secondary. Oh, Stephon Gilmore may be back. Okay. And then what? Right? Like there's still a bunch of other guys out there who seem like they're super washed. So... Again, you know, not a huge handicap like you already know, right? Like, you know the Ravens offense. You know how that's going to work. You know last year that even at the best of times when the Patriots were undefeated and people were alleging that their defense was the best of all time because they had played the Jets and Dolphins a handful of times, you know, they go into Baltimore and they get smoked. Now, this game's not in Baltimore, but does that matter this year? I don't think so. Right, And I'm loath to give out points. And I've already said I'm giving out points with Tampa Bay. And I'm potentially giving out points with Pittsburgh. And I'm going to be giving out points here. And in a lot of ways, I was sort of wondering if I should be giving away points with this, you know, in the Saints and, and 49ers game. But like we've seen enough out of this Patriots team, right? Like we've, we know what we're dealing with at this point. So for me, it's, you know, let's bet Baltimore. Don't go nuts. And just say, okay, how are you going to pull this off? Patriots how is this sharp play going to be so sharp what's the case
Let me see it on the field so that we can come back on Monday and be like, oh, Patriots did this, they did this, and that's why this was the sharp play to, to take the points with the Patriots. Because we're going to need to see it, and we'll talk about it on Monday. Speaking of Monday night, we'll talk about this a ton on Monday. We're going to talk about maybe a little bit more you know, on the Friday show than we normally would, right? And maybe we'll even talk about it on the Sunday show. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And the reason for that is, and listen, it's probably going to be sort of repeated on Monday. We'll see, you know, talk to Sheldon about it, see what his take is necessarily. Um, but Minnesota and Chicago on Monday night. So speaking of, right, like the sharp versus the square, the sort of public, the pros versus Joes, all of these sorts of things right? Fundamentally, this is a game that right now is lined at minus two and a half for Minnesota, right? People are now all aboard Minnesota. They've turned it around. They've got it going, all of that kind of stuff. Okay. They beat Detroit, who may have quit. They used, you know, the Green Bay Packers' fatal flaw of not being able to stop the run against them and let Dalvin Cook cook, if you will, and beat the Packers. And so now all of a sudden, that's enough for us. Even though we had a home loss to Atlanta where Kirk Cousins couldn't stop throwing interceptions before their bye week, even though they traded away or put on IR the vast majority of their good players on defense, we're sure, we're sure, like the Vikings on the road is the right idea. And when do we like Chicago, right? We like them in sloppy conditions, cold weather, night games, especially, right? At home, outdoors. When they can rely on their defense to make a couple of extra plays and they don't have to rely on Nick Foles to sort of keep up with anybody. So this is that spot, right? And what's changed just because Chicago lost to Tennessee last week, what's changed about Chicago that would make us not like them in this spot? We still like them in, in, in all of these parameters. Like, we, we like them against the Saints, and it worked out. And that Saints team, remember them? The team that beat the brakes off the Bucks. Like, they're pretty good. But the Bears went to overtime with the Saints this month. <laughs> like, in the last couple of weeks, that happened. That's a thing. And so, why wouldn't I like... <laughs> why wouldn't I like the Bears here? Like, nothing's changed. Nick Foles sucks. Yeah, he sucked the whole season. You know, like, yeah, it's unfortunate Trubisky's got a banged up shoulder because, yeah, I would like to see Trubisky in too. That's not the point. It never has been the point. We were never going like, you know, I'm not sure people are giving Nick Foles the, the right amount of credit. We've never been saying that. We've been saying he's just good enough that in a very specific subset of situations here, and we're talking sort of three-point underdog, whether it's Tampa Bay, whether it's, you know, New Orleans is, you know, three and a half, four or five. These sorts of elements are when we want to be backing the Bears. And so what are we afraid of? Are we afraid of Kirk Cousins? He of the 0-9 on Monday Night Football? Now listen, I don't love trends and like this guy, you know, he ate a sandwich and he's 3-6 and six when he eats a sandwich and all that, you know, everybody sort of makes fun of that stuff. But like, how many times do you bet Kirk Cousins going like, this has got to be the one? Even at home, right, against Green Bay last year, like, no, no, no. Like this is, they need this win. They got to do it. And he's not going to go 0-9. He went 0-9. <laughs> he did it. And so you can sit there and be like, well, he's not going to go 0-10. And, and then you're sitting there and he's thrown an interception to, you know, Jackson. And he's running something back. And you're just like, how did we get here, right? Like he throws one and Roquan Smith tips it. And now it's a free-for-all. And somebody grabs that ball. And you're just like, God, Kirk Cousins after dark. Got me again. 
How about Vikings outdoors against winning teams in November, December? Right, sort of a you know again, sort of an obscure thing, but at least we're we're sort of dialing it in. We're like November, December, outdoors. Okay, cold weather. All right, uh, against winning teams. So we're talking about teams that obviously have a winning record. And believe it or not, right, the Chicago Bears still kind of in that category at this point. Maybe this game goes a long way to deciding whether they actually end up being a winning team at the start or at the end of the season. How about one seventeen and one in those situations against winning teams outdoors? That that any good, <laughs> right? And so it just and, you know every time they go to Chicago, even when the team isn't a winning team, it's the Vikings have issues there. And so you look at this market and people don't care, man. They go Dalvin Cook MVP candidate. Had a bunch of good games before he got hurt, but he did get hurt, missed a couple of games. Ran through Green Bay, ran through Detroit, MVP candidate right? Let's talk about that on the sports shows. Let's all, you know, can a running back win the MVP, blah, 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 right? Like that's the classic narrative thing that when we hear it, we go ears up. We've gone too far. Have to fade Minnesota going forward. Public perception has gone out of control. Truthfully, this game from a number standpoint, probably a pick them, right? Could go either way, but if we're going to get two and a half, we're going to get three on Monday. We have till Monday for money to pile up here on Minnesota. Are we going to get three? We're getting a free three points at that point. And that's before some of this trends and Kirk Cousins type stuff, because all of this stuff as trendy and as sort of, you know, public as the 0-9 on Monday Night Football thing is, that's not being factored into the betting because people are still betting Minnesota because they're quote unquote, the better team and Dalvin Cook and all of that sort of thing. So again, we'll talk more about this on Monday, maybe even talk more about it on Sunday, but this is going to be a situation here where I think you take the extra two and a half points, you back the Bears in uncomfortable circumstances, both for us personally and for what's happening on the field. So that's it for the Friday football show. Come back Sunday, excuse me, Sunday, 1130 is about the time I post. It's uh, about a 25 minute, 30 minute show just talking about, okay, which of these games that I've just talked about are the ones that I'm playing in a big way? Which ones are going into the Circa Million contest? Which ones are best bets, right? Which, like, whether there's going to be just five, there's minimum there's five, you know, are there, is there going to be eight of them? Is there going to be nine of them? Is there going to be more than that? Is it crazy? Who knows? Uh, teaser bucket, though we've talked about that on Tuesday, cashing easily with the indie leg in the teaser bucket, handful of other teasers in there. We had Baltimore minus one, talked about all the plus two, two and a half, right? Buffalo plus eight and a half, Chargers before that number moved. Even if you can still get plus, you know, one and a half up to seven and a half, I think that's a really good play. And the game we just talked about, you know, Chicago uh, getting what, eight and a half at this point in a teaser and Baltimore minus one as well, right? So a bunch of different options in the teaser bucket. We talked about the money line parlay, which of the underdogs, or in this case, there's gonna be a ton of sort of pick me type games, admittedly. You know, which ones of those are we going to roll with here and see if we can hit, you know, three, four, or even five in a round robin money line parlay. So we do that on Sunday. Come check that out. Sort of set your alarm, if you will, for an 1130-ish posting for that show. Have a great weekend, everybody. Follow me at Authentic on Twitter for college football plays, in-game bets, and general sarcasm about these teams we bet on. Until Sunday, I'll see you at the window.